0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? It's Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Well, this is an exciting day, really. It's Rachel Maddow day. Yes. Rachel Maddow is here. I You know what's the weird thing is is i I know Rachel. I don't know her great, but we go back We I don't I think some of you know that. I mean, people who listen to Air America back in the day know that. But we go we go back. We were both at Air America together from the very beginning. So there's a little history there. And now, like I rely on her almost exclusively outside of print stuff. I at the end of the day, I watch Rachel. It comforts me. Uh, She puts things into context. She uh, helps me understand things. She makes me not panic as much as I could be panicking. And I uh, respect and appreciate her. And I need her. So there's this very odd situation with Rachel (laughs) because she came over here. I swear to God, she's she's doing a book tour. She's out here. Well, she was out here. This just it was just last week we did this. And she literally taped her show live in Burbank drove over here like 25 minutes after she got off of my TV she was in my house like a half hour maybe talking to me and I just watched her show on television so it's it is about a week or like it was last week so there is some information in here that might have uh be be dated already in terms of news but I think we had a very nice conversation and she's got this new book that I I skimmed I got that, the gist of, I, I couldn't dive into it all, but I will. I have, I have a plan to do it. It's called, uh, <laughs> I swear I'm going to read it. I swear it's on my homework. It's on my homework list. It's called Blowout, okay? And it's about the, the Russian oil industry. She's a great writer. It reads very well. I'm just trying to make excuses for me not finishing the book before I talk to her. But that wasn't the conversation I wanted to have. You know how this works. So Rachel is here. And that is uh, it's actually something to be excited about. I was excited. I was very nervous to talk to her. Now, let's get caught up with, a f- with some other stuff. Uh, the last few dates of my tour are fast approaching this Friday, October 18th. I'll be at the James K. Polk Theater in Nashville, Saturday, October 19th at the Tabernacle in Atlanta, and Saturday, October 26th at the Masonic in San Francisco. And, of course, I am uh, finishing everything with the big finish the big the big special taping at Red Cat Theater in LA on October 30th but that is very sold out. Uh, but for tickets to all the other remaining dates go to wtfpod.com/tour. I also want to mention that in San Francisco I'm I didn't do any posters. I have not done posters in a while. And I I'm I'm bringing some posters. I'm I'm bringing some posters to San Francisco. A uh, An artist reached out to me. She lives in Austin. I met her. Here's what happened. So she wrote me an email about stuff. And I went and looked at her work, and I was like, what the fuck? What is this? It's like serious, autobiographical, raw as shit kind of uh, comic art. And she lives in Austin, uh, Raquel Jack on... Uh, Instagram R A Q U E L L E J A C and she was I think she was a fan. She wrote me an email and then when I was out there, uh, I got her into the show and I met her and I and I just I knew she had to do the poster for San Francisco because I think her style lends itself to it. She just comes from a tradition of it's very. A lot of she does all kinds of stuff, but she's very painterly. But her comic shit is hardcore and raw and real and fucking frenetic and uh, colorful and disturbing. And I'm like, this is fucking genius. So I asked her to do a poster for San Francisco for me and she did it. And it's at the printer now. So I'm going to have about 100 of those in San Francisco. Uh, They're going to be it's going to be an art print run and they're going to be about 40 bucks. But uh, I think they're four color, but it's going to be fucking it's it's something, man. So that's exciting. It's weird. I think I'm almost more excited about the poster than I am about the show itself. Is that wrong? I just haven't done a poster in so long. What else? Oh, there's another. our friend John Hodgman. You know, John, he has a book coming out tomorrow, October 15th. It's called Medallion Status, and it's a sneaky examination of fame, identity, and social status as John uh, looks back on the past two decades of his life where he unexpectedly launched a career in showbiz, and you can pre-order that now or pick it up starting tomorrow wherever you get books. So that's exciting. Let's talk about life in general. I've been at it, and i got to be honest with you, folks. You know, the last few shows... We're just great. You know, I've been opening, I've been using this opener, Mary Radzinski from Philly. She opened for me uh, in St. Louis and then she opened for me one other place and then she lived in Philly. So I had to do Philly at the Miriam Theater and then I had her come up to DC with me and then do uh, also do Boston. And she's just a great opener for me. She did a great job. She's very funny. Uh, you can check her out too. Am I, am I plugging, plugging my peers' day? Mary Radzinski. R A D Z I N S K I. Great job she did. Very funny. And so we went, we did the three shows. And as you know, I was supposed to tape the special in Boston, and that didn't happen. And I felt like I disappointed some people. I had a kind of a brain fuck about Boston because of that, because I had to do two shows. And, I, and that means I had to fill up the Schubert twice, piss off the Wilbur, and, uh, and not shoot a special. So there's a lot of things going on up there and returning back to the place I started comedy, which is always sort of strange. It's like going to the to the site of the abuse. And uh, so there is a a little PTSD involved in that. And and it was just kind of fucking with my head. And then the Kennedy Center that was fucking with my head for a whole other bunch of different reasons. It's huge. Twenty four hundred, I think, seats. And it's the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. And I'm in the belly of the beast where just down the street, the monster is ruining everything. And also pacing the halls, aggravated and fuming, uh, figuring out a way to accelerate the end of the planet Earth for his own means so he can get off the hook. I think the monster, the douchebag, President Douchebag, uh, I think he thinks in some level that. If he takes the world down with him, he won't have to pay the price for anything he's done. If we all die at the same time as him, then everybody gets off the hook. In some fucked up way, it's dark and cynical, but true, not exactly the way we all want to go, though, is it? But anyways, I'm at the Kennedy Center, and and then Philly, I, I was psyched about Philly because I get a good sandwich in Philly, and I've worked at the Merriam before, so I did the show at the Merriam first, and it was great. Mary did a great job. I got there that day. Uh, I had the, uh, the uh, roast pork with the sharp provolone broccoli rabe at Denix, Tommy Denix. And that's what you do there. And that's what I did. And then we did the show and it was great. So then we took the train up to D.C. And I was nervous, but I sold the fucking place out, folks. I, I sold out the Kennedy Center. And I'm doing heavy shit, man. I don't think any of the stuff I'm doing is political. I think it's uh, observational. Although I do talk about what's going on politically, and it's pretty heavy, some of it, but it's observational. That, because it's, for me, observational means a rational, relatively objective person looking at what's going on, which is horrible. But I also was able to transcend some stuff because the last time I played a hall that big, uh, Carnegie was okay. But I do this thing where, like when I do shows in rooms that are over 1,800 people— I feel a little dwarfed and sometimes I fall into myself and it can be very tenuous. I can do a good show, but it's more intimate than it should. I kind of lower the level of the venue, of the hall to me, whereas I should really rise to the occasion of the hall. It's hard to tell either way and there's something to be said about making someplace huge, incredibly intimate, which I'm going to do anyways, but to sort of plow through that weird insecurity of, of not being able to carry or hold on to over 2,000 people. And it was, it was a deep sort of insecurity. I mean, I did this. I could do the shows. I did Carnegie. I did, uh, the festival hall. I've done uh, bam. I've done these big shows and I do well, but I never felt like I owned them properly. And I gotta be honest folks. And I'm not tooting my own horn. Uh, I'm not blowing smoke up my own ass or whatever it is. But, uh, I, I rose to the fucking occasion at Kennedy Center. It was a great set. It matched the venue. It was fully confident, fully present, room to riff, but a different vibe. It was like a big breakthrough in a way, which I was very thrilled about. And I was happy everybody came out who came out. They witnessed something. My mother came out. My mother was there. It's always interesting, doing a pretty, uh, pretty crass joke about my mother. But, uh, you know, I believe she can take the hit, and she did. My mother likes to be talked about. And I think generally, like, no matter how bad the joke is, the worst she'll say to me is, uh, was that necessary? Was that necessary? Yes, it was. But but Boston was a whole other ball of wax. I was beating myself up about Boston. But again, there was victory here. Personal victory, folks. Personal victory you know, I've been going back there and I've been doing shows there for years. So this year I was going to shoot the special there. I, and I, have you know, you, I've talked to you about this. I booked the Schubert theater cause I didn't want to do it at the Wilbur, which is where a lot of the comedy is done in Boston. That guy, Bill Blumenreich, he runs the Wilbur. I've worked for him before and you know, they want you to shoot there, but I chose the Schubert cause it would be different. And I wanted to do a different looking special. Then it turns out the Schubert, you know, couldn't, uh, couldn't accommodate what we wanted to do so i had to i had to make an executive de- a creative and i guess executive decision Did not do it there and i didn't know where i was going to do it but i was disappointed but uh, there was nothing i could do because all these specials look the same and i wanted to at least have a different vibe you can't it's not like reinventing anything it's not rocket science shooting a special but uh those theaters all look the same and, and we lucked out it's going to be something interesting at red cat i'm excited about it but Despite that, so I'm heading in, like I know from the get-go, I've pissed off Bill. I know from the get-go, there's audience that were were excited about a special and that's not happening. I know I'm in, I got to go to Boston and now no special taping. I got to, you know, at least populate two shows at a, I think the place seats like 1800. There's just this weight of my past there. And I've talked about this before and I thought I transcended it, but sometimes I don't. I get to Boston and it just creeps up on me. Just years, man. I mean, I started my career there and I was just this aggravated, sensitive, neurotic, angry Jewish kid, 25 years old. 1988, I started working, and I was running around the entire New England area in very compromised performing situations, trying to get through to people that were nothing like me. There was nothing I could do to charm them. I couldn't be myself, but I was trying to get through. Do you understand? And that went on for years. I mean, just seriously, just trying to get a laugh and dives all over the New England region, just being angry, bombing, and just pushing ahead and getting fucked up. Just just trying to get people so unlike me to like me and laugh. And it was fucking traumatic. Most of the fucking time, just leveling. I mean, the intensity of the anxiety and my blind determination to to keep doing it, it at this point is really almost incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible to me now. So Bottom line, the fact that on Saturday night I did two shows for people who came to see me, see me specifically in that city, people who know me, people who understand where I'm coming from and enjoy what I do was definitely special. It was it was it was more special than than taping a comedy special because I let go of something, man. I let go of something. It's over. The PTSD from the beginning of my career in the trenches of New England, taking a beating—it's fucking over. And you know what I did? I went when I went there. I just—I spent some money. I stayed at the Fairmount Copley Plaza Hotel when I was a freshman in college. You know, once in a while, a few times a year, I would get all dressed up, put a tie on, drive in from fucking. Milton, Massachusetts, when I was at Curry College, I think I might even even, I might have even been underage and I went to the Oak Room, I think it was, or the James Room. It's not, the room is not the same, I don't think. At the Copley Plaza, it's an old luxury hotel built in the very early 1900s. And a guy named Dave McKenna used to play piano there. He was a real dude, a real jazz dude. I remember being there one night and Zoot Sims came by after a gig and sat in. And I didn't know much about jazz, but I knew I liked the vibe of the place. And it was a, a special place to me. And it seemed a, a place like a place that I would never get to, that I never would belong there. I was just a you know dumb college kid dressing up, pretending. But I never thought I would stay there. Like It was just a different world. And I fucking stayed there. And it was beautiful. I wasn't even there 12 hours, but and it cost money, but it was beautiful. There was some closure there, and there was some closure with the two shows in Boston. They were great shows, and that that's not nothing, folks. It is not nothing. Whoo, Rachel Maddow. I think I've been saying her name wrong forever. I say Maddow. Rachel Maddow, but it's Maddow, like shadow, Maddow. Rachel Maddow. I was so nervous and excited to talk to her. We it, we did it in the evening because I sa- as I said earlier, she shot her t- she shot her show live over here in Burbank and came right over here. She's on crutches. Um, I don't. She uh, you know she did a thing. She hurt her hurt her ankle, but uh, we got her upstairs, and we got on the mics. We had a lovely chat. Her newest book. Uh, It's called blowout. It came out last week and it's already a number one New York Times bestseller If you haven't gotten one yet go get it wherever you get books because it's well-written It's accessible and it's deep and you learn shit. So here's here's me and Rach talking This
1: is exciting I'm really
0: nervous You're nervous
1: i'm nervous i'm
0: nervous oh, wow. I, i've been nervous all day really yeah yeah come on i mean but wh- what what <laughs> you, you want to wear cans yeah all right why, why am i nervous are, why are you
1: nervous me? i mean yeah specifically why are you nervous
0: tell well, me about your nervousness i will well first of all i um i watch and uh and rely on you every night so even though we have a personal history mm-hmm. I, I can't believe you're sitting there's some part of me like i stopped my life to watch your show so i can get some context i'm about to cry so i can get context on the world because mm-hmm. i'm not you know it's not that i'm not active but i i don't i no one makes sense of it like you do or like brendan mcdonald you know like yeah. I, i'll call brendan But as a resource and as a producer, like I can only bother him so much and I can't really text you. So I'm watching your show and I'll text him. I'm like one of those old middle-aged men who's sort of like, is this really a problem she's saying it is? Like I'll text. (laughs) I need like Brendan knows when I'm watching your show because I'm texting him like Trump does when he watches Fox and Friends. To the country, I'm texting Brendan. Like
1: this iterative point that Rachel keeps hammering away. Yeah, is she it... just stuck on this, Brendan? <laughs> right. Or exactly. is this just really important? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Is it just
0: her, or is it this important?
1: What does Brendan usually? Does he usually like talk you down? Like, oh no, Matt is making too big a deal out of this. No, this
0: is- uh, no. He just like, uh, you know, It's like I don't. I still to this day, even from when we worked at Air America, I don't know where you guys get your information. It's a secret source. And uh, like, you know, <laughs> I I look at my phone. I've got. I I think I'm subscribed to all the things. Things on my phone's news. But then you, you guys hear things. I'm like, what, why didn't I get that firsthand? Why, why am I not in the loop on this? So it's usually that kind of stuff. Like, is this really happening? You know, the I'd, secret source
1: is for me. I'll yeah, tell you. Yeah. My secret source is always like the last three paragraphs of the article. That's where the That's, that's where weird. the nobody ever gets to that part of the article. There's always like one little extra fact they save for there. Yeah. It usually has like a little kicker element right, to right. it, like a little irony to yeah, it. Yeah. And that's the thing that I'm like, I'm going to do the history of that dating back to the Peloponnesian Wars.
0: <laughs> There's We're the, to start the, portal, there. the portal. The portal yes, is in the end. Exactly. So that's why I'm nervous because I know we have uh it's hard for me to see you as uh as uh just the, like the person that I used to see hanging around Air America because yeah. now cuz like when I met you, I think you you had a crew cut, and <laughs> and you wore a baseball hat a lot. Yeah, you were a little heavier. Yeah, and uh, you know, and you were just always, uh, yeah, like sort of uh, leaning over a lot of papers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I have a backpack full of paper that I brought with me to talk to you today. If it would make you more comfortable <laughs> to lay for me the to get into that thing, no, it never. I think made... I might even have a hat.
0: Oh, good. Well, well no, it, it It wouldn't make me more comfortable. I, it would be give me that same feeling I got back then. I'm like, should I be working more? Is there? <laughs> <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> Is it, I just read a few things. Isn't that enough?
1: But did I seem like the same? I mean, not not did my workout. Yeah. It seem the same. But do I seem like the same person, personality wise?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah. Well, you seem more uh, confident, and that you would oh, hope that would happen. That's
1: is it interesting? <laughs> by, no, by I don't this feel. Boy? I don't feel more confident. You don't. No, but I don't. I don't know that I think about my confidence level. Like I don't think about myself as being on a, some sort of confidence arc.
0: Well, right. I get it. No, but I mean, you're. I I think what what it was is that. Well, I don't know when. You decided what you're. Before we get into this, real quick though. So now you ended. You came over here from doing the show, yeah. And when you left, you just told me in my living room that uh, the Turks are about to invade uh, Syria. Yeah. So now you said that like it was happening. I, I I've got to go because Lawrence is here. Uh, but we'll we'll keep an eye on it. Now, do you? Do I keep an eye on it? <laughs> Because now I'm going to be keeping <laughs> eye on it. I just want to make sure that you 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 left us all hanging, and now we're in this like, is that happening? And what's going to happen? And did if you... the,
1: there is a chance that if there is in fact an invasion yeah. of Syria tonight, if the Turks and the Russians are going to invade Syria and right. overrun the Kurds and take, there's a chance, yes, that I have to go back to work. Oh really? Case, like that happens every once in a while. Like you know when Trump shot tomahawk missiles at Syria, yeah, yeah. I remember, like I had to go yeah. back to work for that. Right. Some th- sometimes things like that happen, but mostly it just means like I worry about getting calls
0: yeah i just i guess addressing the confidence thing is this i think you're so busy and so engaged in the narrative that you are the the maddow life mm. i mean where why would you even think about like insecurity i mean i know you talk about it a little bit that like you know, like when you talk about your book you're sort of you know you you have nervous yeah the, yeah. yeah yeah but like i don't even know where that you, know, you wrote a whole book and where where'd you find time to do that i can barely i'm a mess really yeah like physically, I'm a mess. And this book in particular, like the two things you've done lately, the the Bagman podcast about Spiro Agnew, and this book about the the petrol global petrol nightmare uh, blowout. I mean, were these reasons the reasons why you were compelled to write these things or create that podcast? Were they to find deeper explanations of things that you were already engaged? Because they seem sort of. Like, they come out of nowhere, the ideas for the book, but these are things that you needed to know about.
1: Well, yeah. make
0: yourself feel better or something?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, with Agnew, I kept doing little little historical anecdotes about Agnew. Yeah. And every time I did them... I would find that, like, what I assumed had happened was not actually the case. Right. And so I latched on to the Agnew story because I realized I didn't know much about it. I started citing it in little ways, and then I realized I was kind of not getting it wrong on TV, but getting it wrong in my assumptions and my research, which made me more interested in it. And then when we got Trump and Pence... I was like, oh dear, I think this might end up being really important, in part because there was so much discussion about around the Russia investigation in particular as to whether or not Trump could be indicted and what it meant right. about whether he could be charged and all that stuff. And yeah. that ended up being what blew up the Mueller report and right. stopped Mueller from concluding anything in his report. And all a lot of that stuff was adjudicated through the Spiro-Agnew case that we've forgotten about that's right. gonzo. So that's... I know,
0: uh, I like how you talk about a we, that, you know, it's you and a, and a, a like, maybe a, a handful of 60 70 year old people, <laughs> we've all forgotten. Yeah, everybody, how can where are the Agnew people? Where are the Agnew people? But no, a lot of us, I'm not saying that's bad, but a lot of us are learning that, yeah, for the first time.
1: But isn't it? I mean, if you think about it just in yeah. the abstract, everybody knows we talk about Richard Nixon
0: hundred right. million
1: times a right. week maybe yeah. I'd av- yeah. you know if you average it out Nixons constant references constant constantly analogized right. to other things right. in the news that don't deserve it so the fact that his vice president resigned in disgrace after pleading Nolo to a bunch of felonies yeah. for an Active active extortion scheme he was carrying out from the White House. Like you think that would be a more famous thing we remembered about Nixon, given how much we talk about Nixon and his crimes. So it's just weird that that disappeared.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know how people remember anything. It, there's <laughs> so much going on, really. Yeah. I mean, it is important, and, and these things. And I think a lot of what you're doing that's helpful to me is at least finding some precedents for monsters. Yeah. You know, and, and also, like, what always amazes me is what small-time grifters so many of them are. Mm-hmm. But the weird thing about my relationship with your show is, like, I have, like, I get excited when I see Barbara McCabe. You know, like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Barb! Yeah, like, Joyce Vance. <laughs> oh, this will be good. Like, I'm, I'm at that point with it. But so the blowout <laughs> book, though, was it, you know, you're... A, I'm not going to say obsession, but your investigation of mild obsession with the Russian (laughs) I I prefer to think of it as focus. Focus, Focus. But did you, did you need, was there something that you sought to bring it all together and you saw it in the Russian oil industry? Yes. Yes.
1: Well, yes, because what I didn't understand is why Russia, not why they attacked us. Like, I sort of got that there were reasons for them to attack us, but I didn't get why they were so, they so recklessly attacked us. Right. Think about if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, which is what everybody thought was going to happen, including yeah. the Russians and including Trump. Yeah, they did not cover their tracks barely at all, especially in the initial hack of the Democratic Party. They let it be known that they were doing what they were doing. They were obviously trying to undermine Clinton for governing, right? trying to make it so that she'd have a harder time as president. Assuming
0: she would be president. Assuming she was going to be
1: president. But Hillary Clinton was already a Russia hawk. If she became president with Russia having done this to try to help her opponent, I mean, imagine what she could have unleashed on Russia as president. And nevertheless, they still saw the risk and reward balance as being worth it to try to do this thing. Right. Which seemed crazy to me. It also seemed crazy to me that all of the secret communications between the Russian government and the Trump campaign, all these things that they lied about that yeah. they that only got uncovered after the fact were all about sanctions. Right. And then I started to realize well maybe their desperation uh, is linked to their sanctions
0: needs. Right. So, and that mm. really
1: gets you to oil really fast.
0: So yeah, so that the the economic near economic collapse of the country and and would make them they're a lot they don't they don't give a shit they're just going to go for it because it's they, worth it right
1: right when you when the stakes are that high when you haven't I mean they're in, they're a country of 150 million people yeah. with an economy smaller than Italy's right right Italy's yeah. like 60 million people right They've got an economy smaller than South Korea South Korea's right. 50 million people the reason they have such a crappy economy is because it's only got one thing in it which is oil and gas which happens all over the world oil and gas is a bad thing to build your economy on and the only sort of way that Putin has to project power, given that he's so weak, is by using oil and gas as a weapon. And so you kind of put all those things together and you yeah. realize, oh, Western oil companies and American oil companies enabling that guy yes. <laughs> and keep propping them up and propping up that economy and propping up that system of how they're throwing their weight around in the world. That's bad. Right. And we as Americans could actually affect that because our laws govern essentially the Western oil majors, because they all want to do business here or they're headquartered here. So if we made our laws tougher on the oil and gas industry, we could stop them from doing a lot of the damage they do around the
0: world. But doesn't it seem to you that there's a lot of people in in, in American, you know, at that level of wealth and power that want to unleash that Russian money badly, mm-hmm. that it just feels to me that they're all, that's everything that's going on. is like a lot of money up there that they just want to get rid of. Mm-hmm and we just need to tap it
1: well the I mean the way that Putin screwed up the economic fortunes of his country. I mean, Russia ought to be in much better shape than they are. I mean, I know that they went through the collapse of the Soviet Union and everything. (laughs) That was hard. But um, they really did screw up in terms of trying to build their economy as a single entity, as a petrostate economy, rather than diversifying. The reason they couldn't diversify is because in order to do that, you need like rule of law and judges who judge (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, property rights. And And Putin did not want any of that. And so instead, he just allowed this very gangster, poorly run oil industry to be everything. And he steals a lot of the money from it from himself and they throw their weight around. And it's all these guys who are running these companies that are his judo buddies from when he was eight, you know? Like, they're not even good at running their one terrible industry. But he's created this you know, kleptocracy where people get incredibly wealthy at his say-so, and then they're expected to serve him. And what all those people do is they take their money out of Russia and they launder it around the world. And that makes com- countries like the UK and like, you know, the real estate market in New York and sure. Miami and all other sorts of places that are happy to do this money laundering, which is very remunerative. It makes them all corrupt and part of it.
0: Ugh. So I had this fantasy, not a fantasy, but like sort of this idea that that Trump is going to, once he gets pushed out or leaves office, or if he ever leaves, he's going to seek immediately seek asylum in Russia.
1: <laughs> the first time he took an overseas trip remember he went to Saudi Arabia that yeah. was his first trip I literally was like I wonder if he's gonna stop in Moscow yeah like he and
0: Snowden could live together well I mean it's possible isn't it what if he has to be in, live in exile wouldn't that be an amazing end to this story
1: Putin would give him like a crappy little apartment <laughs> they'd be like you're just staying here at first and we're moving you into a palais
0: later <laughs> yeah. but you just
1: have to stay here first and then like a week later it'd be like Vlad I'm still in this crappy tower block yeah. no oh, no we're working on your palace
0: yeah <laughs> you're gonna be He's going to punish him for life for not being president for life. He (laughs) failed.
1: Yeah. The worst thing in the world to be. I mean, if you're a dictator, if you're like, I mean, Putin arguably is the richest man on earth. Yeah. If you're a rich, kleptocratic freaking dictator, the worst thing that can happen to you is for you to be an ex-dictator. Yeah. Right? Like there's no, there's nowhere for you to live. Yeah. And you're not going to get to cash out all your bank accounts. Yeah. yeah. It's
0: it's like, uh, it's, it's like the mob. Yeah. You know, everything gets seized. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it scares me. Like, I feel like we're going down a scary path.
1: Right now, there's something, I feel like there's something happening right now with Russia, like trying to trying to get what they think is theirs. Hmm. Like if Russia is part of this attack on the Kurds, Hmm. the Kurds happen to sit on lots of very oil-rich territory. If that's part of what's going on here, that's scary. If undoing the attribution of the U.S. government that Russia is who attacked us in the 2016 election, if Bill Barr is undoing that right now, that's important. If I mean, Trump just told Zelensky that he needs to do a deal with Putin on the Ukraine war and then he can come to the... The White House. All of those things. All of those things are about Russia finally getting out of the grip of sanctions uh-huh. and getting its oil game on again. Right. And it all seems like it's happening right now. All of a sudden, simultaneously, really quick. And I don't know why they're making this like this move on all fronts all at once, super fast. I- I mean, it feels like maybe they think their time is running out in terms of getting what they need from
0: the U.S. The government. The Trump window is yeah, closing? Maybe.
1: I mean, I don't know. It just feels, doesn't <sighs> it seem like it's all happening at once?
0: Everything seems like it's all happening at once every day. Yeah. And and, and right when you get a little sense of like, uh, something good's going to happen, you're like, no, oh, it's it's fading. Yeah. Well, how's the good fading? <laughs> like, can't it stay for a week? <laughs> I don't know. So were you always, was this always where you wanted to be? No. I mean, when you where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Castro Valley, California. It's the intersection of I five eighty and I eight eighty. Okay, so Has outside lots of, fast of food places,
0: outside of San Francisco, yeah, like closer to Oakland, closer to Oakland. Yeah, yeah, I lived up there for a little while. There's some pretty parts up there, right?
1: Yeah, not where I grew up. <laughs> so you were
0: there the whole childhood?
1: Yeah, my parents still live in the house I grew up in.
0: Really? Yeah. How and what were they into? What were their jobs?
1: My mom is an immigrant from Canada. She grew up in Newfoundland.
0: Do you have Canadian citizenship?
1: No, I don't. Could I always you? wondered if I could get it. Huh. I don't know. My mom's whole family is all still there.
0: I, I, I appreciate that. That to me means that you really are uh, not only um, a uh, uh, an American um, hero, but uh, <laughs> you still have hope. Like, I, you know, it would seem to me that-, <laughs> that have you fled to Toronto you know, already? <laughs> well, just checked. You know, like, like if I got to go, will it be easy for me? <laughs> So, so like, I respect that because as soon as he was elected, I called an immigration lawyer and you've got a Canadian mother and you didn't even look into it. You're, 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 uh, uh, you're much more optimistic than I am.
1: Can I tell you though, like actually the sad part of that <laughs> yeah. is the, to the extent that I have thought about it, uh-huh. like if I ever needed to go, like if, right. you know, something went terribly haywire, I wouldn't want to go to Canada because my mom's whole family was there. And what if I got them in trouble? Oh, right. Like, what if I put them at risk by being this, you know, whatever international bad actor who showed up because of my family connections to them? Like, I'd rather just go to like Estonia or something.
0: Right. You're at a different level of visibility in terms of exile than (laughs) me. Like, I'd just be another scared Jew wanting to get out from under (laughs) it. You'd be a a national, you know, political personality and pundit and intellect and they'd be after you.
1: Well, it just depends on if you were leaving because you were being chased (laughs) or if you were leaving because you wanted
0: to slip. Away, yeah, well, I think that is the 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 last uh, bastion of this democracy. Is they'll give us a choice to leave, an aggressive choice. It <laughs> Might be time to go. It's all we're saying. It's up to you. Have you
1: ever looked into foreign... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: I, I would actually like to go to Ireland, but I'm going to stay. I'm going to hang. I'm willing. So, would, would so, you go
1: to Ireland? Is that what you're going to? I'd say? like
0: to go to Ireland. I have no reason. You know, there's nothing about. I know. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm a Jew, but. Uh, <laughs> But there's something about Ireland that I love. Yeah. And there's something like when I have a fantasy, it's always like sitting out on on, a, on some sort of cliff with some rocks and, you know, an aggressive sea and a lot of green around and just sort of like this is good.
1: And now, is this what you imagine Ireland is like or have you seen? This I've seen part the lower of part
0: of it. Yeah. I've been there a few times, you know, but I'm going I'm going back and I'm going to go up north. Great. I've seen pictures of that part of it. But then I'm always like, what about day three? What about the week? Week two? Yeah. Way, I don't know. So you're in the Castro Valley. Your folks still live there. Yeah. And what's And your mom's Canadian.
1: My mom's Canadian. She emigrated to this country when she was uh, early 20s. Yeah. Uh, met my dad when he was in the Air Force. He was captain in the Air Force.
0: How long was he in the Air Force for? Uh,
1: he was out before I was born. So oh. he was. Uh, I don't know. Like actually, a couple no. years. He, he, he was a captain. So yeah. I mean, he's long, there long. Stateside to be or just in Canada? Stateside. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he was a U.S. He was he was U.S. Air Force. Right. My dad was born in New Jersey. Grew up in Jersey. Arizona and San Diego.
0: So you got Jersey in you. A little, yeah. yeah I'm, I come from Jersey, yeah.
1: yeah. My girlfriend's from Perth Amboy.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, born
1: under the Outer Bridge.
0: I, I know, I know that sign. I don't know if I've been to Perth Amboy, but it's down. It's on the way to the shore, isn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Her
1: dad ran a, or her grandpa ran a longshoreman's bar. Wow. So, like first shift, like six a.m., like round, like. Oh, really?
0: Yeah. The breakfast crew is here. Exactly. Yeah, raw <laughs> eggs dropped in beer. That kind of thing? The <laughs> eggs on the table?
1: We went back there yeah. a few years ago to see like what had become of her grandfather's bar. Wow. And it's now a restaurant. A, I think it's a Dominican restaurant. Uh-huh. But this thing that Susan had always tried to describe to me that I'd never been able to imagine, yes. I finally got to see in action in the new iteration of what her grandfather's bar would have been, which is that you walk in and there's the counter, which used to be the bar. And then the family home is adjacent and upstairs, yeah. but not an entire story. Huh. And so from the bar, you can see the feet of the family oh, in the residential on. part of the really? house. You can see them walking around, but only up to the knee. That's bizarre. And so if you're like a kid going over to grandpa's bar to hang out after school or whatever, like. You it's see a grandma's
0: weird, feet? You can, yeah. You can see the people well, the, who look into the bar from you, the or floor? Or you can
1: crawl around and see all the dudes at the bar while they're, you're, That's wild. Isn't that crazy? Does she remember that? Yes,
0: vividly. Oh, so she was like she got to have a, a relationship with her granddad and that whole thing. Yeah. That's also, a... she likes
1: the smell of beer. Of Just course. Lucky, lucky for me. They...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that it's not to that point where you smell like beer most of the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just some of the times. <laughs> Saturday's. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so okay. So you're there, and what are you doing as a as a kid? Because I have a hard time picturing uh, Rachel Maddow as a, as a child. I just uh, was like, I, I were you always uh, intense and 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 focused? Did the did the world weigh heavy on you?
1: Um, it's so funny that you think of me as intense. You think of me as intense now.
0: I watch you every night.
1: Well, yeah. There's a lot of words in the show. It's a kind of a. Fire hose. No, no, or, I yeah. feel, I
0: don't feel, no, I feel like you're light. You know, I, mm. I, I don't, I don't find you to be, no, I, I don't, I, maybe intense was the wrong word. Maybe focus is wrong, uh, the right word. And maybe kind of like, I, I feel like you, you like, um, what's the, the vibe is like, uh, you, you're always, your brain, whether you wanted to or not, is always working on something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Except for the beer time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, yeah. But you're able,
0: you can compartmentalize that? Yes,
1: I do. Actually, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing, which is why I think I've been able to do it this long. Yeah. That I don't, Um, Like, we're pretty good on my show and the whole staff of not working through the weekend. Like, we don't have to be... If we don't have to be doing a show on the weekend, we don't trade new stuff. You really kind of go, that's it. That's it. it." Which is good. Yeah. To a certain extent, that happens in the overnight hours, too. Although, sometimes you you have to break that. So, but I think that we've got a pretty good, like, show culture in terms of compartmentalization. Yeah. And I really, like... I'm sort of religious about it. Like, I, when I go home on Friday night, I, it's like a three and a half hour car ride. And I'm either driving or if I'm not driving, I read the whole time. And as soon as I walk in the house, I put work away and I don't do anything else for the rest of the night or Saturday or into Sunday on the phone. Phone off kind of shit? Yeah. And I'm pretty, and and I don't fight it at all. Like, it just feels natural. And I think that's good because if I don't do it, like this past weekend, I didn't do it because I'm on this book tour thing. And so I kind of got to stay on it. And yeah. I'm I'm doing the way I'm doing the book tour events is that somebody's asking me questions yeah. and they're going to ask about the book, but they're also going to ask about news stuff. So I felt yeah. like I really needed to know what right. was going on in the oh, news. Yeah. And so I didn't turn my brain off at all mm. over the course of this weekend. And I think it made my Monday show really stupid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm trying to remember if I watched it.
1: It didn't make an impression. <laughs> I mean, I think it was it was fine, but I, it was much less sharp and incisive and because
0: you didn't have a reset.
1: Oh, yeah. all the po- All the points yeah. just blurred together. And that's um, – and tonight's show is actually a little bit like that too. Like I, if I don't get turned off, then I can't turn it back on again. And it just – it's like a – it's like an engine running too hot
0: or something. What are you doing when you're growing up? What are your interests?
1: So I'm growing up in Castro Valley. I have an older brother. We're sort of we're only four years apart, but we don't. We're not close.
0: Is he, he still around? He's
1: still around. He actually came to L.A. this weekend to come see me do a book event, which was really nice. We're actually getting closer now. Really? Yeah, I'm 46. He's 50. And like for the first time in our whole lives, Does he have kids we're making everything? friends. No, he's a single guy. Yeah. He lives in San Francisco. Huh. I think he's gonna move to New York at some uh. point, but like he's just we've we've been chalk and cheese our whole lives, and now like in my mid forties and yeah. his late forties and fifties, like we're finally starting to talk to each That's other. That's interesting, which is interesting. It's been a weird thing in the past couple what of years. What
0: do you it's think? Nice. Do you guys ever like? Is it just sort of like you finally have? sort of let go of something or do you talk about why you didn't talk?
1: No, I don't think we're going to talk about why we didn't talk. But I, because I think, at least I don't want to because I have let go. Yeah. Like I think I was really holding on to all of this childish resentment stuff for a long time. And eventually, and I thought I was over it. Right. But I still couldn't deal with him. And then eventually I just decided to actually be over it. And it, and it, you, I mean, what's the connection between the head and the heart there? Like, yeah. you can tell yourself to let go of it
0: yeah. all you want. Right.
1: But if your sort of heart doesn't let go of it, it you can't, it doesn't change anything. That's and I right. think finally my heart kind of let go of it. And now, I mean, we're not best friends or whatever, but we we There's do possible. get along. Oh, yeah, is, it's,
0: it's amazing nice. when that happens in your heart where, yeah. where you, I think it's about, it's more about a, a, an evolution, personal evolution and self-acceptance mm. that enables you to do that. Hmm. Like, you know, why am I holding on to this? I'm okay with myself. We're old. Yeah. You know, it's like the same with parents. Like, you know, what am I really going to get out of holding on to this? They are who they are. And, and, and you know, we're not going to last forever. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, but why do you think it's about. Why do you think? Yeah, why do you think self-acceptance is the gateway there?
0: because I, I think that you know when you I think you have emotional expectations out of people who have either wronged you or for whatever your resentment may have been, you think that somehow or another it's going to be correct. It may be made correct. Right. and sometimes it just never is. yeah and and it's and, and it, if you accept that and you accept that, you know, whatever it might have been is is either you know not relevant anymore mm-hmm. or, or or not it, it it can't be made up. You know, it's childish to hold on to it. The
1: injury to me is healed. Yeah, it, yeah it's it's like healed, I'm, or it's yeah. just
0: or as you get older, you're like, it doesn't even matter somehow sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what happened, but but I, I just find that there's a lot of things as I get older where I used to be so important and I don't give a shit. And it's just yeah. It, yeah, where's the time for that? Right. Yeah. And it's also like all the crying that's involved, you know, with letting go of stuff. You, mm. you, it's weird, you know, when especially with family, because there's that moment where you're like you, you, it, there's a release of this weird thing, where uh, this emotion, when you decide to be like, all right, well, you know, we're 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 older, and you know, and and you know, we're blood, and and you know, it's, you know, I, I'm not expecting anything, but let's, you know, let's let's be here now, like yeah, let's just and we're family, see. yeah, somehow, yeah, I don't, I mean, it can't work for everything, obviously, if things are really horrible,
1: yeah, but it when it does happen, it's a it does feel like a remarkable thing. I do think that you can't will yourself into it. No way. Like, And I think that a lot of like therapy is organized around the idea that you should understand the rationality of that and commit to doing it and yeah. decide to doing it. And that's fine. It gives you language to talk about it or whatever, but it's right. not the same thing as being able to do it. And that, I think, is actually a more, like, sort of, it's not necessarily spiritual, but, like, a much more... Um, it's a it's not an intellectual thing. No,
0: it's a emotions
1: yeah. and intellect are two different things.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and like there you can, you know, cognitively act differently. Mm-hmm. You can behave politely. Mm-hmm. You can be nice. You can act as if you can take contrary action. And, and that'll that'll that's that's nice on a social level and it may maintain some sort of connection, but until your heart lets go, or you know, the the forgiveness is there. I don't know.
1: I do think though that when you when you fake it, like yeah. you're describing, yeah. like making yourself behave yeah. the way that you don't feel, sometimes that can kind of show yourself a little bit of a path.
0: Sure. Yeah. You know, like this yeah. is what
1: it would be like. Like, right. step outside yourself a little bit. Like, this interaction is not bad. Right. It could be like this all the time. If it, I, you know, if I wasn't faking this, this would be nice. Well, it gives yeah. you
0: that space, even though it's fake, to see them as, you know, people. Like, you know, it, it, to get out from under the, whatever the 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 obstacle is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it forces you into the relationship.
1: I also just, I mean, honestly, I think yeah. it comes down to maturity at a certain level. Yeah, like, it's about, like, you know, it, and maybe that's about... Maybe that's what you're saying in terms of like letting go of stuff for yourself first. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, just you know, grow up and get over it. Yeah, there's yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, not to be not to be too airy fairy about this, Mark. It, there,
0: yeah, it and, it and it's nice if your heart can go along with that. Yeah, and you get along with your folks.
1: I get along with my folks great. I didn't. I mean, I, as an adult, like as I I came out when I was uh, right after I got to college. Yeah. And um, they had a hard time with me coming out. and then soon after I came out, my brother came out too. Oh, so they had two gay kids., <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that wasn't awesome. And so we had there was some rocky time there, yeah. but um, we n- made up and they're amazing now, and actually, they get along better with Susan than they do with me.-huh. So um, there's a real like it's it's good. I feel very blessed in terms of my family
0: that's a, that's wild. I mean, I, I mean, on some level, they kind of uh, it makes it special <laughs> to have two gay kids. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure that's the word they would use. <laughs> but special's a word. <laughs> I mean, I, I think they like us both, and I think we're fine. yeah, uh, but I think they got they must have felt like they hit the opposite lottery at the moment. Yeah,, yeah. But,
0: but now everybody's relaxing into it. yeah, and you have a good role. And your dad uh, it, what's he do, what did he do after the Air Force thing? He
1: worked for the water company. Huh. So he was in, uh, he worked for the water company in the East Bay, which is called East Bay Municipal Utility District. Yeah. And he became like a real authority on the ways that um, local places in California fight for water with each other.
0: Uh. Yeah. So what inspired you? Like, so you, wh- when you were in high school, what were you doing? Were you like sports. a jock? Oh, you're, so, yeah. yeah.
1: I did uh, sports and um, I don't know. I mean, I was kind of, you know, a jerk. A jerk? I think I was a jerk. Really? I mean, I, I don't know.
0: Well, You you probably what? You were cocky or?
1: No, I think I was just self-obsessed. Right? Yeah.
0: Well, did you feel like uncomfortable?
1: Yeah. I mean, not more than anybody else, I think. I mean, I wasn't, I think I had a pretty normal yeah. childhood and upbringing. Yeah. Well, I
0: mean, like I was self-obsessed and I still am, I am still self-obsessed, but in high school, like I never felt like I, I fit in anymore, but I think when you have sports- at least you got that.
1: It's a thing to do, and it takes up a lot of time. And there's people like yeah. you have
0: a you know you learn you know group, yeah <laughs> dynamics like you know you can be with other people mm-hmm. to 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 play a game. You know, I didn't have that at a specified time. Yeah, that yeah. ends, yeah. and then you have to go do a different thing.
1: <laughs> like that's very that's very helpful. Structure nice. is helpful.
0: And you always yeah. did good in school. Yeah. Why? Why is that?
1: I think the secret to being good. Uh uh getting good grades in school for me was reading comprehension. Huh. I think that was the thing that I was actually but, good but, at. But
0: but you must have been somewhat of uh like you, you had like you wanted I don't know like I there at some point I knew I wasn't going to get straight A's. But mm. I, but you must have been one of those people that's like you're going to ace this shit, right? <laughs>
1: I, got, I definitely got good grades. I mean, I didn't get uniformly good grades, but I got good grades. Right. But I do think that like, like I wasn't, I'm not great at any one thing in school. I think eh. the one thing that I really can do is reading comprehension. Okay. And I, weirdly, I think that applies to almost everything because that helps you take tests right. because it makes you read the question better what than other people at? who don't. you bad at? Math? I'm not, you know what I'm terrible at is eh. dates. Yeah. Which is weird because I have such an interest in history. I can't remember. Like, I don't know. Like, I sort of know Susan's birthday. Yeah. Like, but barely. I don't know either of my parents' birthdays. I don't know my anniversary. I don't know. Right. Um, And historical dates. Like, I can remember years because I can put them in context of stories. So dates. But I can't remember. Like, if you asked me uh, the the year of of an important historical event, I can't tell you unless I work it out in a contextual way.
0: Well, I think like, because the reason I'm like curious is that like, I think when we were working together, there was a sort of like a, a, a kind of a, a narrative around you, you know, like, you know, we were all kind of there in the middle of the night. I was mm-hmm. doing the morning show mm-hmm. and uh, you were like in the beginning. Well, we can get there America in a minute, but the like, it's like she's a Rhodes scholar. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is, but I've heard of it. <laughs> and it means that you're really smart and special. What is that even? Like, I'm still not even sure what a Rhodes Scholar is, but I knew you were one of them. And I would just see you in your baseball hat standing over papers going, it's a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> That's what they do. Look at them work.
1: And then you learned that David Vitter is also a Rhodes Scholar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby Jindal. Chris Christopherson. Yeah. Chris Christopherson, indeed. Yeah. But, like, what what, what was the... what was, When you decided to go to college... You you went to Stanford, right? Yeah. To study what? I did public policy. And th- so what inspired you out of high school to start getting involved in that? I mean-
1: so that has a story. So that is, so I'm six, t- I'm a year, I was a year early in school because I skipped first grade. And so I was 17 when I graduated You tested from out school. of first grade? I was tall.
0: Oh, okay. And so
1: the, <laughs> I think it was an anti-bullying initiative <laughs> for the short kids. Um, and so I was a year young and I, I started to come out to myself and figure out that I was gay when I was 16. And so my last year in high school was a little different because I was starting to figure out something else about myself. And I kind of stopped doing sports. And I had a choice. I'd been recruited by a couple of schools to go to school on athletic scholarship.
0: Did you have to go through like you know the secret dating and all that kind of like thing no, when you? Not really. No.
1: No, because I didn't come. I didn't. I started to come out to myself at the at, like after I graduated from high wow. school. Then I got to college and I was like, yes, I'm definitely gay. And then I came out right, right away. It didn't, <laughs> like being in the closet was not going to work for me. Yeah, right. Look at me. Yeah, I yeah. Gonna... <laughs>
0: I didn't want to say anything, yeah. but. <laughs>
1: people always talk about that like oh you're the first gay person to be you know to win this thing or to be hired to do this thing i'm like yeah there were other gay people before me you just couldn't tell that they were gay because look at me i'm just the first one you know about
0: anyway yeah so okay so So
1: i was so i i came out and this was um i graduated from high school in 1990 Hmm. and so this was like really the apex of the AIDS epidemic and I grew up in the right. San Francisco Bay Area and it was a uh, you know it was a really really tough time in terms of people mm. not that much older than me dying right and so I in coming out decided pretty early on that I felt like well if I'm going to be part of this community like my community is going through something and I want to try to be helpful mm. and so I became an AIDS activist pretty quickly upon yeah. coming out and mm. so started doing Stuff with, I worked in an AIDS hospice in Oakland when I was 17, and wow. I um, did a bunch of AIDS awareness and AIDS activism stuff on mm. campus. And then I joined ACT UP, and I was an ACT UP kid, and all of that made me that's why i did public policy because i was like i'm working on a problem that is a public policy problem and i want to be better at making these arguments so i did public policy with a concentration in healthcare because we were working on the healthcare industry to yeah. try to get cures made right um and then i did i, I really wa- i wanted to i think what i actually wanted to m- major in had i not had this kind of utilitarian attitude toward it was philosophy yeah, yeah. um and so instead of doing that because i didn't have the money or the time to do a double major. I did an honors program in ethics, which is like a mini philo- philosophy degree. And that for me was really helpful because I felt like it made me a better arguer. Yeah. Which is again a utilitarian thing I wanted to cultivate because I was an activist and trying to learn how to make good arguments to change this thing that I was trying to fix.
0: And and then you so that you graduated with a degree in public policy. Yeah. And it, did it help you? Did it? Did, were you able to apply it?
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, yeah. I did... It, public policy is an interdisciplinary thing at Stanford. And so I did... You have a choice about sort of which... You could take it in a more poli-sci direction yeah. or you can take it in a more uh, quantitative direction. And I did tons of statistics. Mm. And that ends up helping both in reading comprehension and yeah. figuring stuff out, in assessing people's arguments about numbers, um, and also in sort of credibly talking about quantitative stuff. That helps.
0: Right. And also knowing that... You know, what was happening politically was that, you know, an entire community was being you know, abandoned, you know, on a policy level. Right. Yeah, and it, yeah. so you had to have the weapons or the at least the ability to push back. Yes. And call bullshit and fight the fight.
1: And I felt like, first of all, I'm a lesbian. I'm not a gay man. Yeah. So I'm not at the same kind of risk. Right. Also, I am young coming into this in terms of the people who are most people the people who are dying yeah. are just slightly older than me yeah. and i've got access to this incredible educational resource how can i use all of those privileges as opportunities to make me more effective right and that was the it was like this really utile thing in terms of the way that i approached that
0: so it wasn't even a political incentive it was a social incentive it was like 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 you weren't like i'm going into politics you were like how do you know, we get help for these people right now through the system that we have
1: right now. And what I have access to right now, how can I yeah. use it to best set me up to do the most to, to, to do
0: the most help to do right. the most good? And did that start to define you politically for I mean, were you defined politically before that?
1: I don't you know, I did not I
0: didn't really have politics. Yeah.
1: Um, and I've never really been all that. I know this is going to sound weird, but I've never really been all that motivated by electoral politics. Yeah. Like I definitely had issues and stuff that I cared about. And yeah. I got really good at the California legislature because I worked on California AIDS policy for mm. a long time. And I ended up getting sort of focusing on um HIV in prisons, because mm-hmm. I felt like that was, weirdly, a very winnable thing. I felt like it was low-hanging fruit where we actually could get stuff changed and it would make a difference for a bunch of people with HIV. Mm-hmm. So I got really good at understanding policy around prison stuff. And, and healthcare And, and healthcare care. Yeah. And, and that, it all helped. And that was my politics. Right. That was the kind of stuff that I worked on. and um, I mean, Oddly, yeah. it's
0: not, you, you know, people would sort of frame that, I guess, because you're you as progressive, but it's really just... It's, it's basic human rights stuff.
1: It was problem solving. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: and just health care for sick people.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I one of the things I worked on was uh, a hospice bill. Uh, the former mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Viorgoso when he was in the California state legislature, one of the things that I worked on was getting him to sponsor a bill so that people who were dying of AIDS in prison would be released into the hospital where the hospice system agreed to provide secure facilities so that Mm. even though these were prisoners who had not yet served out their terms, if they were going to die, they could die outside prison in a palliative care environment that the hospices promised would be secure. And they did that. And they
0: did that. Wow.
1: And that is, you know, it's a small piece of this. Yeah. But is that liberal? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's a... I, and, it, and is it electoral politics? No, you know yeah. it is. You know, eventually down the line, you want there to be somebody like an Assemblyman Rivera Villag- Villag- there who's inclined to help you on something like this. Right. But it was really about getting the getting stuff fixed.
0: And how does how does the Rhodes Scholarship work? How does the next phase? Did you was there any time between undergrad and grad?
1: Yes. So I was living in San Francisco. I was doing ACT UP stuff, oh, and okay. I was working at the AIDS Legal Referral Panel, which is a legal services organization for people with AIDS.
0: Where in San Francisco were you living?
1: Uh, I was living in the Mission.
0: Oh yeah, me too. I lived there. Really, for a year what street? And a half. I was on Guerrero. I, South NS. Oh, nice. Twenty second. Got it. It was a little heavy back then. I was just going to say that was a little. Is that, it was like ninety uh, three. Yeah. It was. That's yeah. around my time. Yeah. San Francisco's weird. It's, it's very weird. I don't know what's happening there. I
1: was just there this weekend, and I was like, I don't recognize anything.
0: But I never knew what what was holding that city together. I didn't understand the power structure, how it was laid out. It always felt very kind of like like chaotic and electric to me. Mm -hmm. And still, if you get off of that that BART station at Mission and 16th, it's still like, what the fuck is happening (laughs) on this corner?
1: Yes. (laughs) And Mission and 24th too. I mean, it's the same... It's the same thing. It's crazy. Yeah, and it's always been like that. But growing up in the Bay Area, to me, that was the city. It was the only place I could imagine living as an adult and the only place I wanted to be cool enough to
0: live. It's a pretty cool city, really. It's,
1: it's, it's, uh, there are, there are a few places in America that, are feel like city states you know that yeah. feel like yes technically this is an That's american true. place but right. this is its own place it is and san francisco was one of those And i think part of it part of the magic of san francisco is the vistas yeah because of the hilly nature oh, of it's the crazy. city and the architecture yeah like everywhere you turn it's like this can't be a real thing that i'm yeah. looking at this it's, surreal vista yeah it's um, wild and it gives you a feeling it gives you a sort of I don't know, bigger than yourself feeling about that city. It's cinematic. You can see yourself in a movie every second that you're walking through that. And
0: also so much of it is built on individualism. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the nature that, you know, this is a safe haven for all types of of people trying to define themselves, you know, whether it's the gay community or the hippies or whatever, the, beats, go, the prospectors, yeah. you yeah. know, it was just always based on a sort of rugged kind of weirdness. And it, it really you can feel it always. Yeah. yeah.
1: And now that it's so rich mm. with all the tech stuff, it feels I don't know. I mean, are they erasing it? I don't know. It just feels different. I mean, A, the housing costs are Insane, And so no regular people can live there anymore.
0: New York feels the same way. It feels different. Something's something's been robbed or or, or moved. New
1: New York is big enough that as some things change and become homogenized and pureed, other things descend and become ungentrified and stuff moves around. I mean, San Francisco is so compact that as it's being sort of suffused with gazillionaires, it is... Turning into what something that feels a little bit more like a theme park. It just doesn't seem like it does. some things don't
0: work. And I never know where the where do the people go that they push out? Yeah. Do you? I mean, do you know? Elsewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's I here I don't know. It's, they're on the streets. Yeah. It's terrible. Well, this so I don't know. I always thought that I'd be a Californian. Yeah. I always thought that I'd live long term in California, and now I can't imagine. I live out, I mean, I work in New York, but I, Susan and I live in Western, rural Western Massachusetts, and like it's very clear to me that's where I will live the
0: rest of my life. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. By Springfield, not by North uh, Yeah, not far North from Springfield. Adams.
1: Yeah, between, sort of between Springfield and North Adams. That's oh. right. The, the hill towns of Western Mass. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah.
0: it's pretty out there, and they've got that amazing museum there now. I will live there Mass, forever. What is it, Mass, Mass Mocha. Mocha.
1: What a- I will live there forever.
0: Yeah, it's great, and and there's good people, mm-hmm. and you know you have space. It's, and there's tree, se- it's where
1: it's where the animals live. Yeah. is how I think of it. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, so you do this in between, you know, Stanford and 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 wherever, like you're yeah. working for the uh, at the or uh, the resource center. Mm-hmm. What is AIDS? AIDS Legal Referral Panel. And then when do you when do you do the Oxford? So thing?
1: Stanford asks me to apply for a Rhodes Scholarship, and I was like. Mm, Okay, and I didn't really think that Why much did about they it. They
0: ask you because you like honors. I had like...
1: good grades, and I guess they thought that. I mean, it, it's a prestige thing for the school oh, that okay. they want their graduates to win these somebody? scholarships. They, right. Yes, and so I think they have a program that they, I don't know, put your resume through mm. or whatever. I had left Stanford a little bit early. I, I had a lot of debt, and I had enough credits to get out, and so I left after three and a half years. And so I was had already, I you know, I had already been gone for a while. Mm. And th- when they asked me to apply, and I was like, well, I don't have any plans to go to grad school. I don't have any money Mm -hmm. and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Mm. So somebody's asking me to do a thing. Okay, I will. And I ended up winning, which was a real surprise to me. And you studied? Uh, Political science. I was admitted to the master's degree and I did the master's program for one day. And then I applied for a transfer to the doctoral program, which is a much easier way to get into the doctoral program than just applying to it directly.
0: What, what, uh, what, What does that get you? You're a doctor? Yeah. And the master's would have been what?
1: You'd have to call me
0: master. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> seems like doctors better yeah yeah
1: so and in transferring into the doctoral program from the master's program is like no sweat yeah. but just directly applying to the doctoral program having not done a master's i never would have got in right so it was a little trick
0: so you got the doctorate in political science political
1: si- politics is what they call it but it's political science. was there
0: any life-changing mentors or teachers there that you know kind of did your brain change there
1: I left Oxford and moved to London for most of the time that I was there. So I I was, I mean, the AIDS epidemic was still what it was at the time. Protease inhibitors were really the big breakthrough in terms of treatment. And that wasn't until 1996. And so I was was doing my doctoral degree before then. And I really felt like I was lost in Oxford. And so I moved to London and I joined an AIDS treatment organization there and started doing activist work again. And then did that alongside my thesis which was on the aids movement
0: so now how do you get from there after you do all this work to like when i when i got the gig it, so i guess it's still the late 90s but how do you get to radio so i ran out of money in london
1: um and i had not yet finished my doctoral dissertation because i was spending all my time doing activism stuff and so Were you having fun at all i was I was, Can I had you a, have fun? I had an active social life oh, once yeah. upon a time. Uh-huh. I did.
0: But but you're like you, you know. Can how to...
1: you have fun, <laughs> Marin? <laughs> like,
0: look, I I'm not I'm not good at it. You know, I, but you know, you seem pretty good at it. You you know, when you talk about it, you seem to have know how to have fun. <laughs> I'm just asking. You know.
1: I did have fun. I would. I did once have fun. Yeah. Yes, I, I had. Mean, to... You seem
0: to still have fun. You you know, I hear you talk about it occasionally. Yeah. You fish. I fall down. Yeah. That's fun. What is that? What did you tell people do people know that you're yeah, hobbling I'm, about? Yeah. 3 months on crutches. Did you did you say that on the show?
1: Yeah, uh yeah, I've talked about it a little bit. Oh. Yeah, I yeah, I so I was stepping from a thing down onto a thing, just yeah. stepping down and I missed the step. Oh. And I tore two ligaments on the outside of my ankle and then I flipped back the other way and rolled it the other way oh. and tore the big ligament on the inside of the ankle. Ugh. And when that one tore, it ripped off a piece of the bone. Oh my God. So I like broke it and sprained it at the same time. Jeez. Yeah. And because the ligaments on both sides are are torn, mm. totally torn, mm. it won't stabilize. Usually when you tear ligaments, it's only on one oh side of the joint. So
0: what are they, did you have to get surgery? No.
1: I don't, I mean, I went and saw a surgeon, but he was like, mm, just going to take a long time to heal. Really? Yeah. Ugh. I think if I, I think... I I think by uh, by the end of this month, I'll be off crutches.
0: All right. I hope. All right. So you broke. You leave London.
1: I broke. I leave London. I move back to the United States, and I really want to get my dissertation done because I'm never going to go to school again, and I've put in all this work on the doctorate, and I'm not going to leave without getting the freaking degree. Yeah. And so I was like, I need to prioritize. I need to just go somewhere where I will be miserable, where right. the only way I can get out is by finishing. Yeah. And so my dad's best friend from the Air Force was a Republican lawyer in Southern California, and he said that I could work out of a broom closet in his law office. I was like, that'd be miserable. That's good. Or I had friends who had moved to Western Massachusetts and opened up a gay B&B. And I was like, that sounds like (laughs) hell on earth. New England? In the winter, they were raising dogs. I had no interest in animals whatsoever. Part of the country I had no interest in whatsoever. And a and b so like hospitality, not a specialty, of de la casa. So I was like, that actually sounds like real hell. I'll do that. And I thought it would
0: be <laughs> what well, you so you're going to go to a place that that is warm and sociable and just lock yourself away and be miserable. Yeah. I, okay. The whole
1: thing, I was like, I want to be someplace that has nothing to offer me. Uh-huh. So the only way out yeah. will be finishing. Yeah. And I've now lived there for 20 years and I have a dog and I'm super happy and I love winter. And
0: are I your folks Republicans?
1: No. No. They're not. They no. they were s- more conservative when I was growing up. Right now, they're to the left of me, especially my dad. My dad is to like to the
0: left of you. Yeah. What does that look like? Like who are we talking? Well, like, like Bernie left I further. Don't,
1: I don't know who they'll, they're. They're very um, uh, what's the word? Practical when they talk about the Democratic primary. Like they're all about who can beat Trump.
0: Yeah. Were you brought up with like religion and stuff?
1: Yeah, Catholic. Really. Yeah. Huh. My mom is from a very Catholic family. She has sisters who are nuns and stuff. And my dad, Jewish family, but never practicing and really like ashamed of it. And then like Christian science and weird stuff. And so he didn't really have anything going on. And then he converted to Catholicism when I was
0: eight. Wow.
1: Yeah. So and I grew up Catholic.
0: With hell. You grew up with hell?
1: Yes. <laughs> well, that wasn't like in the house. No. It, yeah. Uh,
0: who knows where it is? <laughs> I don't <laughs> You know I don't know if this is it. I don't know if we're all in it. But but so but did, were you like from a young age did you have that fear where all those ideas planted in you did you have to remove them at some point? Did you think that maybe you would remain religious? Did you struggle with that?
1: I left I stopped paying attention to religion at a time when I became super obsessed with myself. Right? So what, I think When was that? Well, like or I think we're talking about, about like high school 16? and coming yeah, out yeah, yeah, and all that stuff yeah. like I became I was so obsessed with myself and so full of myself yeah. that I stopped thinking about the constraints of the world in a way that included religion and I didn't come back to it for a long time. Yeah. But I never really like fought it or was tortured by it yeah. at least as far as I remember. But I also you... kind of my memory writes over every 6 months or so so I don't know.
0: And you but you
1: came back to it? Yeah, I consider myself religious now. Really? Yeah. Catholicy? Yeah. Huh. I know. I doubt the Catholic Church is ha- is happy about it, but it's too bad they're stuck yeah, with me. Look, <laughs> they,
0: they've got enough problems, and I'm sure they're, they're you're the least of them.
1: When you have those kinds of problems, though, I'm exactly the kind of problem you want to focus on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. But like, what is there? Like, because I don't have that thing that that needs to find the God thing. Like, mm-hmm. what? Where do you find comfort? Were you in a darkness?
1: No, I, I find prayer to be um, helpful in my own
0: life. Yeah, I mean I can understand that. Yeah. I've prayed before, but I don't have I don't know what I'm praying to, but I think that the act of it is something. The
1: act of stopping yeah. your other mental I mean I don't I very rarely pray out loud. I'm always just praying in my head. Yeah. And the act of stopping what your brain is otherwise going to do to do a deliberate thing which is based around giving thanks. Yeah. I think is the kind of is a is a both a reset Um, In a way, that's like a psychic pause. But I also think it helps you get your head on straight. And it helps helps. It makes me not a better person, but it makes me more the person that I want to be.
0: So it's primarily around gratitude. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's around uh, gratitude and sort of humility and um, acknowledging things that I'm doing wrong.
0: I think that's part, like, I think that if you hit your knees and do it, like that's that humility of that, no matter what you believe in, mm-hmm. like if you say, I'm going to humble myself, yeah, you know, that, it, that those are well-worn psychic channels.
1: Yes, exactly. And yeah. they, and it works, honestly. I mean, I, yeah. Prayers is a, is a daily part of my life and it has made my life better and made me a happier person and made me more effective at the things
0: I want to do. do. Have you been unhappy?
1: I have depression, so that's a different thing than unhappiness, but I...
0: I think uh, I, like for your whole life?
1: Yeah, well since I was like uh, 10.
0: Really? Yeah. How does that manifest in your day to day?
1: Uh, Well, you know about depression. I
0: know, but is it like, do you get the heavy heart dread type or, or nothing?
1: My depression is cyclical, and so it's not every day. And oh. so what happens is I get it for a throw of a few days oh, every right, every right, few right, weeks. Right. Oh yeah. And uh, and when it happens, I sort of lose the will to live. Like I just like, right right. right. Nothing has any meaning. And th-
0: but do you get the other side too? Do you get a manic few days? Occasionally? I you know
1: I, I less than I used to. Uh. I really used I used to have like a pretty even balance of mania and depression, and now I have very little mania. Yeah, never, like one one. It's like one sixth of what it used to be.
0: I never I don't have real like mania mania because my old man kind of has that. But mm. like every there's a few days sometimes where I'm just sort of like, wow, yeah. Yeah, but not like I'm going to buy things, you know, like right. it's just sort of like I feel great.
1: Yes. Maybe inappropriately great. <laughs> Maybe I haven't done anything to yeah. deserve is, feeling this much yeah. energy. Is this what joy is? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I can't. I, I love
1: that. Yeah. I mean, I oh, still love it. It doesn't, again, I can't predict it. Yeah. I can't recognize that's what it is when it's happening. Yeah. But I wouldn't give that up.
0: No, yeah. But so you never medicated? No. No. I mean, just doing a little prayer and managing the depression.
1: Yeah. I found riding the, it out. There are things that are good for me. Yeah. So exercise is good for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah um susan can see it like a light switch susan can, eyes. so i can't tell i i mean uh, even after living with it for yeah. 36 years yeah su- i still can't tell when i'm depressed because part of depression is not being not being able yeah, to have you think emotional because you believe it yeah
0: you're like oh it's over it's you over know, it's, there's
1: yeah. no any any time i've ever felt joy i was misled Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, you just lose the ability to see that but having a partner yeah Who can tell me that's what's going on, even if I can't emotionally process it, like I can hear it and it can, it can remind me to like, make sure you exercise, make sure you sleep, make sure you don't do anything dumb, that kind of stuff.
0: Right. Well that, yeah, because it's a vibe. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if someone loves you and you've been with someone a long time, you can just see it in their eyes, Mm -hmm. like right away. You're Mm -hmm. like, okay. That's what this is, honey.
1: (laughs) Huh? Huh? Who are you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You don't love me. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, I know that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. I understand. You, don't
1: love, you think you love me. It's nice of you to say. <laughs> but yeah. who could love who could me? Who like, exactly. <laughs> Basically. Worst. basically. It's the
0: worst. Yeah. But, but I, I feel it. Yeah. But I've actually, it's good that it it's comes and goes because I've talked people out of loving me. You know, if you really commit, you, <laughs> <laughs> you could you could sell it, man. Especially you know, like,
1: if you're a good arguer. Like, oh, you yeah, can yeah. put together a good yeah, argument. Yeah.
0: You don't, You don't even know me. How, how horrible dark I am, it's just
1: terrible. Remember that nice thing I once said to you, I didn't mean
0: I that. I didn't mean that, it was trying to you know, be apologetic. It
1: was one of my evil tricks, because yeah. I'm evil.
0: I know, yeah. yeah, worthless. It's dark. Okay, so you're up there, and I don't understand how you get to radio.
1: Um, so I'm taking odd jobs. While I am trying to finish my doctoral dissertation while I'm living in Western Massachusetts at the the b and B in the winter winter with the dogs. And
0: Well, are you just like the wet blanket of the place? Are you the buzzkill? or the people that I'm the handyman. Oh.
1: But I don't know how to fix anything. Oh. So I ended up needing to like find things to do to make money. I applied to work at a video store and I didn't get the job. And then I became a delivery person, but I had a car with electrical problems, uh-huh. and you know those are intermittent, so that was hard. And
0: it's cold, too. And it's cold, yeah. uh,
1: and I did not know how to drive in snow, so mm. that was bad. Yeah. Then I got hired with like another handyman job, and I broke the plumbing at the place that I
0: was. <laughs> yeah. I installed yeah.
1: a pressure sprayer on a faucet yeah. backwards, and so it blew up the faucet. You,
0: you had no idea how to do it? You have no idea. I've done that. I, I tried to be a gardener for one summer in, in Boston when I was drinking a lot, and I removed an, I removed all this woman's myrtle. I thought they were weeds. <laughs> like, I (laughs) (laughs) I got halfway, all her ground cover, I just ripped out. She's like, what'd you do? And I'm like, doesn't it look clean now? Yeah, but that's supposed to be there. I'm like, I don't know.
1: I don't know. But look, dirt. Look what I found. There was dirt Dirt under there. (laughs) That's kind of, I mean, I ended up doing landscaping as one of my terrible jobs. There was this woman who um, knew, the people who had hired me to be the handyman who I blew up their faucet. They had a friend who had just bought a house in the country. And it had been a house that had been rented and had been kind of a mess and had like lots of, it had like, thorn bushes in the yard and, and broken windows and crayon on the wall yeah, board yeah. and stuff. She was fixing it up. Oh. And so she said that she needed like a high school boy type laborer to come in and not do anything that had any skills, but like to dig up tree stumps yeah. and to haul away thorny things. Right. And I was like, I'm your guy. Yeah. And so that was one of my odd jobs. And I showed up at that lady's house to go do that work. And that was Susan. And it was love at first sight. And that's really? how we met.
0: That's crazy. It was
1: amazing. It was great.
0: Oh, um, and everything changed. And
1: everything changed. My whole life changed. And then one of the other jobs that I subsequently got was uh, as the the news girl on a morning zoo radio show.
0: You'd never done radio, never. And you never. You had no real desire to be a news girl.
1: No, <laughs> news girl. No. So
0: was this a morning zoo situation? Mm-hmm, yes.
1: Dave in the morning. Dave Brunell on one hundred point nine WRNX, which is now a country station in Holyoke, Massachusetts.
0: Really? Yes. So you were real radio. I uh,
1: yeah, oh, yeah. We were a more. We were like you know DJs.
0: Yeah, I know. I there was know a guy, I the know guy the who dude. was the
1: board op was, a, was his name was Pete, Paul Scarpino. We called him Pino.
0: Yeah, right. Dave on.
1: in the morning. We yeah. did never use his last name. He was just Dave in the morning, Mister in the morning, and I was the news girl.
0: So you were kind of like yeah. Uh, uh, I used to do a joke about it. There's the, there's the main guy. There's the laughing guy, mm-hmm. and then there's the shocked woman.
1: Mm-hmm. That's me. I yeah. was the shocked woman. I was Robin. Yes. <laughs>
0: There's one going, one guy going, and the other guy going, and the woman going, "Yell, fellas!"
1: (laughs) That was (laughs) the one thousand percent accurate. That was exactly. I loved it. I loved it.
0: Yeah, it was fun getting up, right? Like a good morning crew is pretty exciting.
1: It was the the hours sort of sucked, and I had a long drive actually Uh. to it in the winter driving and the whole thing. But the the. Getting actually getting to rip and read AP copy and mark it up myself and change news stuff and then talk with the guys about the news i just loved it.
0: And that was it. Yeah, it just like that was the beginning me. of your broadcasting life.
1: And then I did that for a year, and then I went back to Oxford to do my—I finished my dissertation, went back to Oxford, did my oral exams, got my PhD. From Morning
0: Zoo to Oxford. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, two weeks later was nine eleven, and after nine eleven, the a lot of the radio stations. Um, stopped playing music and started doing just like all talk and information stuff. Yeah. Cause it was a very sober time. Yeah. And I volunteered at a station in Northampton. I said, "Can I come in and do live shifts? Like, can I do fill-in shifts? Yeah. Like, this is." And they said yes, and that quickly turned into me getting the morning show myself there, which was the Big Breakfast with uh-huh. Rachel Maddow on ninety-three nine The River. Wow. And I did that until Air America was founded, and then I had a friend who knew Liz Winstead because he had been her favorite bartender. Mm. and I got him to give Liz my reel, and Liz said she wanted to hire me, Liz and Shelly Lewis. I just saw Shelly,
0: yeah. Did you? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love Shelly. Yeah. And they hired me to come to Air America to be the news girl on the um, Liz Winstead, Chuck D morning show.
0: But in the morning show that you had, the big, what was it called? The Big Breakfast. Big Breakfast, were you doing, what was it, two, three hours?
1: Three or four, I
0: think. Three or four hours of just you?
1: No, just music. I was DJing.
0: Oh, oh, oh! You weren't doing commentary. You were just no.
1: I was doing news and interviews and commentary and like little PSAs and stunts and stuff like that. But all you know, regular morning shows, So playing music too.
0: Oh, giving away
1: tickets to the Miles Davis show.
0: Uh huh. But not politics, really. Not really. Isn't that wild?
1: Yeah. I mean I didn't I I had this whole other life at the time where I was still being an AIDS activist. Sure. And I was still doing all I mean, I was like trying to desegregate the HIV units in Alabama and Mississippi prisons, but then also like <laughs> giving away concert tickets in the median during the eight minute, you know, and you like fish it. song. Yeah, of course. You live radio's great. It's wonderful.
0: Yeah. And then, okay, so you get drafted into Air America, which is were you excited about that or did you see it as sort of like "Ah, like, I'm just a news person? Oh, no,
1: I was like, I can't believe this exists. I can't believe I get to be even a little part of it. Um, I told everybody in the sort of activist world. When I got hired at Air America, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work out, either the entity or me, yeah. but I'm going to go try this for six months. And so I'm going to put everything that I'm doing on hold, give all my projects to other people. I'll probably be back in six months. Go ahead. Yeah. And then it's, you know, turned one thing into another. And eventually I got my own show. Well, Unfiltered got canceled.
0: Well, I remember like, you know, because we were all there. I remember there was this weird, like, I'm I'm hung up on this thing that, that happened between us that it wasn't bad. Hmm. but. I was like, I you know, I was living, uh, you know, in this apartment there, you know, uh, an old apartment. I had my my wife at that time was in L.A. I was going kind of crazy, and I decided I was going to try to make. You remember Angelica Kitchen? The, yeah. A, well, I decided I was I was looking trying to figure out how to make that cornbread that they make there, and I remember I made <laughs> I worked I found all these recipes and I made this very dense, really horrible cornbread, and I brought it into Air America, and for some reason I just had made I had decided. Because I think I went to one lesbian-run vegan restaurant that that <laughs> lesbians really like cornbread, dense cornbread. So <laughs> so I was like, Rachel has to try this. Like and I just <laughs> like and I, like I was just so dead set on you trying this this recipe I made once, and it wasn't that good. And like you eventually were like, I everyone's saying I have to do this, and you were very nice about it, and you tried it, and you're like, okay. <laughs> Did you tell me that
1: I needed to do it? Or did you tell other people to tell me? Like you actually brought oh, other I d- people's I just, pressure I, was to brand you
0: No, know, it was very important that you tried this horrible <laughs> cornbread I made. It, it,
1: did you think it was good at the time?
0: I, I thought it was something. Yeah. But I, I just, I needed someone, I needed a lesbian to sign off on it for some reason.
1: Well, I don't remember your <laughs> cornbread, so it didn't scar me. So if that, you would take a, my affirmation it,
0: now, it, even it, if it didn't work it, then. It, it wasn't that great. But uh. it was just, I, I felt embarrassed about it. I think it's like, it, I found it embarrassing. Cornbread. That that, I, yeah. I mean,
1: I think when I think about like lesbian stereotypical foods or like things that straight men might misunderstand yeah. about what lesbians yeah. uh, what to eat. It was like a eat. vegan
0: thing. It was like you know it had a lot of stuff. Yeah, it was
1: complete. I see. I would assume like what, I would guess like eggplant. Right. Like oh, yeah, lesbians yeah. must love eggplant. Yeah. yeah no, no. I, I, I just cornbread.
0: I had an uh, I, I had an idea about a, a, a way of life <laughs> that was something I made up based on one experience at a health food <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> And I thought that's how I'll connect with Rachel and her crew cut. <laughs> Rachel, <With> the- <laughs> her crew cut, and stooping over a large, period, large pile of papers. But so, yeah, like, was- but I remember you go, like, you went from news person, but it didn't. Even, you were barely a newsreader. You became a co-host of Unfiltered pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Yep. They integrated you right in. Yeah. And then, like, we were me and Riley were in the morning. I, mm-hmm. I guess you were there because what happened Did Flanders bail or something? Yeah.
1: She ended up doing her own. They she they thought it was going to be Laura Flanders and Chuck D and yeah. Ms. Winston. I think this is yeah. how it went. And then Laura decided she was going to do her own thing instead. Yeah. And so then I stayed on as the news girl, but they kind of augmented my role so that right. I would have this bigger role with them.
0: Right. And then like uh, right. And then then everything went down. Like we were in the morning, and uh, you guys came after us, and then Danny Goldberg came in and disrupted everything, fired us. Then you had like you had a two like a 1 hour, one hour show from 5am show, 5 5 to 6am 6 6 and then yeah. mark riley came on oh yeah for 2 hours and then you had like and then they moved you and then you had two hours after Riley, or you guys split a block? Oh,
1: I, no, I would sometimes do, I would fill in for somebody else after that.
0: Right. Yeah, and but, then, I, yeah
1: but my regular gig was that 5 a.m. gig, and then they did just kind of ping me and, around. And yeah.
0: that's when you, like, you know, we used to see you, like, I guess we weren't quite fired yet when you first got that or something, because you'd be up all night. Yeah, I'd come in at midnight. Those, you would do five hours of prep. Yes, Oh, and you were just all these different piles. But I did no
1: callers, no guests. It was just me talking no, I scripted know.
0: for an hour. And that and that's what you know. That's what broke you, really. <laughs> right? I mean, no, yeah. I mean that's what how you got your big break. I mean, the one thing that Danny Goldberg did right, and I bad mouth him all the time because I I can't stand him mm. for what he did to us. Mm. But like, he knew you were great, and everybody knew you were great. But he really championed you to a point, didn't he?
1: I I write over, like I said, I write over my bodega f- camera, yeah, I honestly don't. I mean, I started that doing that five a m show. I loved that. It was killing me in terms of the hours. But at the same time, remember then I got the gig on Tucker Carlson show on MSNBC. Oh. Right, where they hi- and they were in Secaucus, right, and so his show was live at 11 p.m. Right, and so I would go do that. I'd yeah. wake up in the mor- wake up in the morning, which yeah. was at night. Yeah, and then I would go to Secaucus, do that show with Tucker Carlson for an hour, and yeah. then come back, start working on my show in the car, and then work overnight from midnight to 5 a.m. Do my show from 5 to 6, and then I'd go to a bar. Yeah, like so, I had a really weird, really weird set of hours. Yeah, but also I had this foot. This foot newly planted in the TV world,
0: right? With Tucker,
1: with weirdly with Tucker, and then I started getting you know other things. He wasn't awful to work with. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was (laughs) nice to his staff. I remember like there was a something weird that happened with the staff where like somebody was. Somebody behaved inappropriately toward one of his producers, uh-huh. and he like totally stood up for her and like like shamed and horrified the person who had behaved badly and like really was stand up in Wait, of- so
0: that was your 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 foothold that was how you got into t v yeah, and so and then, because
1: of that, what was going on at Air America, yeah. and we were—I mean, it was such chaos.
0: Yeah, it was. right. Yeah. And the
1: move, and with the move from over by the Empire State Building into Chelsea, and the you know all everything was so. Oh, the we-
0: original studios was so uncomfortable. Yeah. It was like we had like almost colonized a black station
1: The WLIB. Yeah, that's right. I know. And it
0: just never felt on, on the level. to me. It was but, weird. And yeah. A lot,
1: a lot of that stuff was weird. But all of those transitions, I just again, and I, I will. I may be wrong about some of this because I don't have a great memory yeah. for these things. But my experience of it now, looking back at it, is that I kept a lot of the stuff going on at Air America kind of at a distance, mm. kind of at a remove, because yeah. I was doing my own thing. It was crazy hours. It was really hard to focus on anything yeah, that happened the during middle the, day of the night because I was asleep yeah, all day long. Right. And then I had this other work to do. And yeah. so I was just doing that. And then ultimately I ended up transitioning more into TV.
0: And now, like, like the way you're diplomatic about, like, Tucker Carlson, Carlson, it's like, cause, like, you know, you guys are all on TV. I get all that. But at this point where things are so strained, I mean, it, is it still k- possible for you just to look at them as like, well, that's just the other side. And they're doing their trip and I'm doing my trip. I mean. I don't watch them. No, I know. I don't yeah. either. I but I know they're there. Yes. <laughs>
1: Can hear him under the door yeah, it's just, yeah. Uh,
0: but you you, you don't you, you don't get involved with you know being angry or what at uh, that
1: i mean the to the extent that we are competitors um it's based in ratings numbers that come out at the yeah. same time every okay. day that we can all see right but it's not like i do anything to try to compete with tucker or with hannity no, I or get chris it. Cuomo and, and, or anything It's just we're all doing our things sort of parallel alongside each other and you
0: cite them without malice at yeah. times
1: Tonight I cited Fox News. I noticed yeah. that,
0: yeah. Like, they, they they had this story first, and mm-hmm. I'm like... And here's yeah. what they
1: said about it. You were mad. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm Not trying, to credit them.
0: No, I know you got to do what you got to do. So, like, now, all these skills that... Like, I think that's what... In, in terms of, like, not getting involved with what was going on in America, I felt that way, too, because we were doing six to nine, and then you're out. Mm-hmm. You, you know, but, but all the skills you learned and that you employ... I mean, you're one of the great uh, teasers... <laughs> You're like, you know, no one, like they're, <laughs> and that's like a radio thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's a TV thing also, but were you aware of picking up all these particular skills? That you, was like, I was schooled at the church of Dave in the morning. Like yeah, I know right? how to like right. hold you
1: until after the commercial, when we come back, we're going to be taking the fifth caller right. you'll never believe what we're giving away. Get, get ready to dial now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's all gets planted. Right. And yeah. you know that like, like you when that moment where you're like, how long we got? Six minutes. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to go eat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 right, exactly. Right. Also, you know what? I need to set up a dentist appointment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to get on the phone now because I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff. You know, the thing that I miss from mm. live radio is I had a soundboard. Did you guys have a soundboard that you could actually fire or was all the sound stuff fired from the control room?
0: Uh, no, there was one there. I never used it much. Like, you know, Randy Rhodes used it, a 360. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I still have one I stole from Air America. I think I have the 360. I loved the 360. Well, you I put mounted... clips on there and yeah, everything. Yeah, because yeah. I
1: mounted all this stuff on there, you know, like, we're burning down. Yeah. like okay we're like yeah yeah like it was Get a
0: couple of those yeah. i love
1: that stuff like yeah. I, I want those not only on tv like i want those in my life in life yeah i want like a little keychain version of that you can do it with
0: your phone i think yeah, so, all right, I guess we got to kind of come in for landing here. When you come to Los Angeles, where do you stay in Hollywood? Do you have Hollywood friends?
1: I just stay wherever anybody will put me. I oh, just really? I was just stay in a hotel.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Um,
1: no, weirdly, I'm from the Northern California, Southern California rivalry that mm-hmm. Southern California doesn't know about. Yeah. Like, I grew up with a whole chip on my shoulder about L.A., and yeah. then I found out that everybody from L.A. thinks San Francisco's nice. Oh, yeah. I thought it was a mutual rivalry. It's oh, no. not at all.
0: No one in L.A. is really happy. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we don't know why we're here. We think we have to be here.
1: (laughs) I don't know. People seem all right.
0: So uh, now let's talk uh, just to to close up. Now, are you... um, It seems to me that, you know, outside of when things get, you know, tragic, that you're... you're, I don't know if you're optimistic, but you kind of stay diligently on on top of kind of, you know, revealing what's going on, contextualizing what's happening in Mm. in all its horror. Uh, But you, you rarely seem... Completely freaked out.
1: Hmm. That's <laughs> I, acting.
0: Y- yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, I can tell usually when I'm watching you. Like, oh god, this isn't going to be good. Look at her face. Yeah. There... <laughs> but I do you do you believe in in your mind or in your heart at that the system will correct? You're, I mean, or is that just a waste of time for you?
1: I. I mean. I don't know. That's a very hard question. Yeah. I mean, there are two things that I have a hard time with. One is that I just get emotional yeah. on TV. Like, it's often for positive things as much as it is for negative yeah. things. Like, I cry at the national anthem. Like, right. it always happens. Like, I just got, I have that thing. And so some of, some of sometimes what you're seeing on TV is me just having...
0: And the good moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, like there's this this bit that I was trying to read out of the book yeah. um, at book events, which is because um, I've been trying to read a piece from the book that's about Ukraine because of the impeachment thing about yeah. Ukraine, and I get to this point in the bit that I was reading, which is about. This guy at the protests at the Maidan while the, you know, Yanukovych's snipers are shooting protesters and all this stuff. And this guy stands up and he's wearing a surgical mask and a plastic helmet. And he starts saying, like, we will never be slaves. We will be free. And Ukraine will be in Europe and we will be free. And every time that I read it, even at these book events, like, I just, and it's not because of something terrible. It's because I'm moved by what he says. And that happens to me all the time. Right. But in terms of the uh, big stuff, um, in terms of where we're going, I do, th- you know, we're a country that had a civil war. Yeah. We are a country that put an attorney general in prison for 17 months yeah. for not that long ago. Yeah. You know, we're a country that went through an impeachment in yeah. the 90s. Like, we've, we're a country who's been through a lot of these things. And I think that uh, this president is uniquely angled against the things that we most need to make us an ongoing democratic concern. And so yeah. that is a very acute problem. Yeah. But I also have to believe that we're resilient given yeah. what we've been through before.
0: Okay. What do you think? Well, I just, uh, like in terms of how I'm exploring it with comedy is that it, it just feels to me that with the disconnect and with uh, the sort of the amount of information flying around on in, in, in everyone's hand in every given moment... Mm. I think, sadly, if, if enough people are just OK, you know, things will go on as they are. I, I I'm actually doing a bit about how, you know, if Trump doesn't leave and actually I'm going to paraphrase it says, well, it's authoritarian now. And this like initially most of us would be like, he can't fucking do that. But three days go by. Like, no, nah, I guess it's that's authoritarian. The right but, yeah. but 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 the scarier part of the bit for me is like six months down the line. Is that, you know, the number of Americans that will be like, you know, I'm not really feeling it. You know, I thought it it sounded scary, but it's not really affecting me. I I didn't even have to change my cable provider. You know, like, there's that element of how we live that there's such a disconnect between, you know, civic duty or even, you know, civic education or government or how the the government works for us with smart people, you know, that that, you know, I'm scared that it'll it'll just creep up on us. Mm And that the information that a lot of people, no one's getting the same information anymore and every everything's sort of cherry-picked or there's a bubble here or a bubble there. There's no unified sort of uh, information unless something horrible happens. Mm-hmm. And even that gets spun. So I just think that it's it's all of a sudden we're going to, even though you know what's happening or I know what's happening, that we're going to wake up and, and a lot of these things are going to be gone.
1: And it, Yeah, and it will have happened and we're still right. here and we then need to be making decisions about what to do. right. It's not like, I mean, you know, people say this about particularly difficult transitions in history, yeah, that when you look back on it, it's clear when the light switch flipped. But when you were living through it, it wasn't clear when you were supposed to actually stop living your life the way you were in order to sacrifice to save your country. right. like we didn't you can't see those things when you when, when you're in it yeah. in the same way that we like to believe we would when we look back on it. That's, I mean, I'm trying to read as much fiction as I can, sort of about these types of democratic transitions. Oh, and yeah. Stuff, just to be able to try to imagine it better. Uh huh. Um, and that's, you know, re- reading fiction written contemporaneously to other democratic
0: losses and democratic transitions. Well, there's so. a lot in the book, too, about how these economic structures around oil, mm-hmm. you know, create strongmen situation. Yes.
1: They prop up autocratic dictatorships, but also they take good government and turn it into crappy government. Yeah. with By capturing it and co-opting it. And... The good news in the book is that I tell a story about what happens in Oklahoma where Oklahoma still deep red, not turning blue, not yeah. having a revolution, nevertheless stands up and is like, "You know what? I know we're totally dependent on the oil and gas industry and they've completely co- they've completely um, control- come into control yeah. of our state government, but we need to keep our schools open five days a week instead of four right And we need they need to pay taxes and we need to stop having them um, induce earthquakes. And the people of Oklahoma, like, stood up and made those things happen, despite all the efforts of the oil and gas industry to stop that from happening. Like, you can actually rein in the forces that are hurting you. Right. You just have to work at it. You actually have to commit to do something.
0: And there's never been so many that have been so shamelessly trying to get away with everything they can Mm -hmm. than right now. This guy is just a portal to the worst Sort of like exploiters and greed monsters.
1: But he's also a wuss.
0: A complete wuss. And
1: whenever any Republican stands up to him on anything, he immediately caves. Yeah. And so that gives the Republicans incredible power and it gives constituents of Republicans incredible responsibility to get them to stand up. And they pick their battles. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they pick weird things on which they're going to stand up to them about when they let everything else slide.
0: Turks and Syria. Uh, exactly. Yeah, but then we don't know what happens. We can we, we I gotta check get my, our phone now. i got to get my eyes on it. All right. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to you. Mark, I miss you. I miss you too. It's nice to see you, man. Nice to see you. There you have it. Did you get to know her a little bit? Did you know that stuff? Uh, I love Rachel, and I was thrilled that she came by. Uh, The book is Blowout, came out last week. You can get it wherever you get books. And don't forget, when you hear cage-free eggs, that means the hen still only gets about one square foot of space. At Vital Farms, all the hens are pasture-raised with at least 108 square feet per hen and outdoor access all year round. Vital Farms, pasture-raised, bullshit-free. Look for them in the black carton at the grocery store and visit vitalfarms.com coupon for a special discount. All right. And now I'm going to try to play guitar with my thumb. Okay. I'm going to play guitar with my thumb. I'm going to thumb pick uh, the guitar because I want to feel it. So it might be a little, it might be a little janky. Is that the word? <laughs>